0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Time Out. Let's Talk Policy, a podcast from the Foreign Policy Youth Collaborative. We're your hosts, Tessa DeConcini and Emma Zafari. FPYC is a teen-run nonpartisan nonprofit that highlights youth voices on global issues and bridges the gap between teens across the political spectrum. This week, FPYC prepared for multiple upcoming webinars, promoted two new outreach directors, and started a GoFundMe so that you guys can help support FPYC in our mission to give young people a platform to discuss their passion for policy.
1: Today on Time Out, Let's Talk Policy, we will be hearing excerpts from FPYC's conversation with Adonis Assad, a 17-year-old from Lebanon who agreed to share his experiences during and after the explosion earlier this month as well as the work that he has done to support his community since. Then we have a fun game with guests Galen Miller and Maddie Dodd, two FPYC team members, to see if they can tell fact from fiction about historical government actions. And finally, finish up with an opinion editorial about Lebanese leadership from Cedra Miller. All opinions represented in this podcast and all other FPYC opinion content are that of individuals and do not represent the organization in any capacity.
0: Before we get started, here are the top three foreign policy news events of this week. First off, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe announced his resignation due to health concerns. Second, UN Security Council rejected the U.S. calls for reimposing sanctions against Iran for violating the 2015 nuclear deal. And third, in Belarus, thousands of protesters took to the street after the disputed August 9th presidential election, and Russian President Vladimir Putin wants protesters not to push too hard because Russia has special force councils ready to restore order.
1: First up, here's Adonis Assad, a 17-year-old community activist from Beirut, Lebanon.
2: Hello, everybody. My name is Adonis Assad. I'm 17 years old, and I'm from Lebanon. So first, I was like an hour away from Beirut. We could feel, we thought it was an earthquake. And then we saw a big smoke in the sky. Uh, after that, there was a minutes and a lot of humor started to spread out. Some, some said that uh, there was a trial to kill Hariri, to assassinate him. So first we had the fear of a civil war because such an important person in the government of Lebanon being assassinated can lead to civil war. The Lebanese people are most probably divided now between each other, and any single mistake between them can lead to a civil war. Also, there was another humor saying that it was an Israeli attack. So we also had the fear of a war right now with Israel, which we were not ready at all because of COVID and the economic crisis we are passing through. I was afraid from what happened. And yeah, my father was close to, uh, close to the port where it happened he was around let me see around a mile away and he got a little bit injured so that night i went to beirut searching in the hospitals where he was i was really afraid really scared if something had happened to him but yeah thankfully i found him in the hospital and he was all right the night the explosion happened you could see on social lebanese social media all lebanese people volunteering or like telling uh people who were homeless or people who know somebody was homeless uh lost their homes to come to their house even if they are like miles away from the explosion place so even my neighborhood till now we have hosted around like six families who lost their homes and uh each province in lebanon did that and i think now we have reached a point that every single family that lost their house they now have at least a roof to sleep under it. Since the explosion, uh, I expect I was one of the first youth or people to be volunteering down there in Beirut. First couple of weeks, we have been doing a lot of cleaning up homes, uh, streets, you know, from all the ashes there. Also, uh, I was helping in setting up uh, field hospitals that were donated from the country of Qatar. Uh, the last week we were working on, with an organization actually, in putting new doors for the damaged homes. And that's the thing we are still doing it. tomorrow. We will keep on doing that. My neighborhood and my town, we decided to do like a small campaign to provide clothing for people who lost their homes. And we were able to provide clothes for around 150 families till now. Also my neighborhood decided, uh, I think it was three days after the explosion to give dinner for homeless people. So yeah, these were the two major things that as a community we decided to do. I didn't see local authorities trying to help us or help me in person. Uh, They were absent, totally absent. We just didn't see any help from them. The Lebanese people were not free for that. We were always like in Beirut trying to rebuild it. You know, we are starting to rebuild it and I'm sure that we are the ones going to rebuild it, not the government. Or like everybody knew that this government couldn't do anything. You know, corruption has been going around Lebanon for 30 years and the economic crisis we are in now is not because of this new government, it's because the previous one and this new government They just knew that they couldn't do anything. So it was better just to resign instead of like being a fake government for the Lebanese people. They would do only if there was an international pressure again towards them, which is is what the French president, Emmanuel Macron, is probably trying to do. And he's coming to Lebanon, I think, by tomorrow also, giving some pressure to these authorities so that hopefully they will do something. But I don't know... Or I'm not sure if this local authority is going to rebuild Beirut. Maybe they will going to improve a little bit our political system and how we are living, like how the economic crisis is, but rebuilding Beirut, I don't think they're going to build it, rebuild it. After the mass explosion that happened, unfortunately, a lot of leaders that are billionaires, they started to buy lands and like real estates from people who were affected from the explosion with really low prices, That's, that is not acceptable, but they're doing it. So dirt, uh, let me focus more on what the prime minister said about dirty methods. Some of these dirty methods are like, let's say we in Lebanon, we don't have, for example, 24 hours electricity one of the dirty methods the government did was, they always claimed that, yeah, this year we will bring you 24 hours of electricity and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, they used to spend billions of dollars. They, that's what they say. They used to spend billions of dollars on electricity. But last year we figured out that the government only used to spend two billions of dollars per year on electricity and the other billions that they claim were being paid were in these leaders' bank accounts. They just disappeared. Most of them in Switzerland, they have bank accounts in Switzerland. That's one of the dirty methods. In Lebanon, there's something called, uh, or it's not called, it's like financial aid for poor people to buy homes, okay? This was present till 2018. So what it is, it's like loans with really low interest, around 1%, and you can pay it for around like 80 or 70 years. Okay. This was canceled. This was a great thing for the poor people, you know, they could buy homes and establish families with it. So this was canceled because one leader called Mikati, Najib Mikati, this guy, He didn't like that thing. He needed money at that time. And he was the responsible or like, he took office for that. He was the responsible or like the leader of this project. He decided that this is a waste of money for the government. So after that, people were like, okay, if it's a waste of money, we accept it. Two months after that, uh, a group of journalists did a big research towards this leader's bank account. And with the closure of this, or the shutting down of this project, they saw that millions of dollars were transferred to this leader's bank accounts. We need to have a new uh, system of government, a new country, I would say. New educational system, most important, because in our educational system, we don't learn what civil rights are. We don't know what we we should own, you know? We just don't know it. We we don't have a class for civics, you know. I would say that this ideally should be done. Justice first, and then a new government, a new country, with new systems in everything, in everything. Well, uh, from what I saw from the international media, I believe the international media did a great job in covering what was happening in the real ground. I don't actually think they missed a major thing, you know, what happened in Beirut and what happened with the affected people. So I really appreciate what the international media did. I was helping in setting up a field hospital donated by the country of Qatar because Lebanon lost, or Beirut exactly lost around seven major hospitals. Uh, Also, like when I go to volunteer in Beirut, uh, in downtown Beirut, as far as I know there is around like three uh, kitchens uh, one of them is French the other is Turkish and I forgot which one is the third but like I don't worry about food when I go volunteering there those two countries are giving us free food there and whenever we want and it's a great thing we Lebanese people highly appreciate it and thanks the international community for that the, the Western governments especially, they did a really good job in helping us. And without them, I don't think we could have made it actually. The Lebanese people need change, and most of them believe in that. But it's hard, it's really hard. It's harder than you will think, or I think. We, and I have unfortunately no faith we can do a change without international support.
1: Today for our discussion question segment, we have two FPYC content team members with us.
0: Ayushi and Lee are here to help us answer the question, what are the World Health Organization's main concern regarding the
3: crisis in Lebanon? Hi, my name is Lee Yin and I am a rising junior and I live in Irvine, California. Um, I have done a lot of research and work in the past few weeks on the crisis in Lebanon.
4: Hello my name is Ayushi and I am a rising sophomore in high school. I live in New Jersey and I am very passionate about um, politics as well as the crisis that's been happening on Lebanon. In my opinion I think the biggest health crisis there
3: is actually not a physical but a mental one uh, because of the severe economic crisis and also the pandemic, there are a lot of stress, anxiety, and a lot of mental health issues present in the people of Lebanon. And also uh, the government's corruption and the protests also uh, made people feel quite hopeless. And of course, the explosion on August 4th exacerbated um, everything that was going on. So I would say that right now, um, the mental health crisis is something that the WHO should be addressing.
4: Yeah, definitely. Many, many people had to experience such a tragedy and witness such a tragedy, and it really did take a toll. As a result of what happened in the blast, three of the hospitals in Baruch are now considered non-functional, and two hospitals are partially damaged. So other than it just being a mental health crisis, many people may not be getting treated, and it's, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Also, I feel like
3: this whole crisis is really hard for, well, both the older demographic and also the younger people, um, because for the old people, um, everything that's happening right now is probably triggering their memories of the previous civil war and also of the war with Israel. And also the mental health stigma in the country is making everything worse because Although the older generation has experience with this kind of turmoil, they don't really know how to help the younger generation and their children because they've never really dealt with their own mental health problems head on. So that is really saddening to see.
4: On the topic of mental health, many children and many people in Lebanon currently do not have supplies, and that can definitely take a toll on them as well and their health, and it's just really heartbreaking to see. Yeah, and also because of, of course, the
3: pandemic, resources, as you said, is really lacking, and um, a lot of psychologists in the country, they're also affected by the blast, and the trauma, and right now they're dealing with their own wounds before they can really help others and their patients.
4: Yeah, many healthcare workers are also trying to, you know, make sure that there's also a respondent with COVID going on right now. So I feel like there's so many things and so many factors happening all over the place. And like so many people are having such a heartbreaking experience. Everybody's going through something, whether it might be COVID or people that are affected by the explosion. And many people currently are affected by the explosion in Lebanon. So it's really heartbreaking to see all that.
1: So kind of on that subject of how COVID is impacting the people in Lebanon um, and how it's impacting hospitals and doctors, I was kind of wondering what you guys think is different uh, because of COVID. Like, how might the global response to the Lebanon crisis have been different without the impact of Corona and without a global quarantine and shutdown? And I was wondering if you guys would be interested in sharing some thoughts you have about that
4: there would definitely be more resources. I mean, I know that there's a decrease in supply right now. What do you think, Lee? Um, I definitely agree
3: with you. And adding on to that, I think um, because the pandemic is still very much present in each country, a lot of global leaders right now are not um, as much concerned with things going on in other countries than they would be if the pandemic is not really affecting their own country. Every government, their um, focus divided between international affairs and local affairs. So because of the pandemic complication, they cannot fully focus on helping other people in need because they have people in their own country who also need a lot of their assistance.
1: Well, I know that we can keep talking about this subject uh, for a lot longer, and you guys have some really incredible opinions and thoughts about it that we have been uh, so lucky to hear today, but we do have to wrap up this segment. So thank you guys, Ayushi and Lee, for your uh, wonderful input. Now, let's welcome the contestants for The Government Did What? Hi, everyone. So we have two FPYC content team members with us today, Galen Miller and Maddie Dodd. Galen, go ahead and introduce yourself.
5: Hey, everybody. My name is Galen Miller. I am the former content director and chief operations officer here at FPYC.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Maddie Dodd. I'm a content producer at FPYC, and I'm from Arizona. Well, it's really great to have you guys on the podcast today. Um, We're going to be playing a quick little game where you two try to discern what these governments have actually done and what we just made up for fun. So we'll give you a series of answer responses and you guys will pick the one that you
0: think is true. Y'all ready to play?
5: Oh, yeah.
1: Start us off, Emma.
0: Okay, so the first question is, which option do you think that the US government has actually done? Number one, they tried to spy on the band Queen. Number two, they tried to train spy kittens. Number three, they launched a formal investigation on Fountain of Youth Organization. And number four, the U.S. has funds allocated to arts and crafts in the national budget. All right, I'm okay. going to go for the arts and crafts one. Okay,
5: okay. We're guessing which one is real. We're guessing which one is real?
1: hmm Which one is real?
5: Mm. I, it's the spy kittens. I'm telling you, they tried to do that.
1: You think so, Galen?
5: I do, I really do.
0: Okay, well what's the truth Emma? And the truth is actually, the US did try to train spy kittens.
5: I told you, I told you, I knew it.
0: In the late '60s, the CIA spent millions investigating whether domestic cats could be trained to spy on the Soviet Union. The project was named Acoustic Kitten." It didn't work out, but the National Security Archive has published a memo saying that kitten spies were a real thing.
1: That's so funny. I just I have like a cartoon image in my head of what that looks like.
5: I bet Tom and Jerry.:
1: Yeah, exactly okay 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 let's get to question two because we don't have a lot of time so um here's another one on which are true that the u.s has actually done or or tried to do first they looked into ways to weaponize different types of smoke including smoke from cuban cigars specifically two they plotted to kill fidel castro with a seashell or three There is a code buried in the Rose Garden that unlocks a secret door into the Library of Congress. Or four, they studied how fast icebergs were melting around Siberia while looking into the fastest water routes to Russia during the Cold War.
5: Okay, that last one is too boring to be real. Y'all just made that up. You think so? I know they did a lot of stuff to try to assassinate Fidel Castro.
1: Maddie, do you have any thoughts? Fidel Castro... You want Fidel Castro? Okay.
5: I think. mm, mm. Yeah, I have to go with two as well the seashell.
1: Okay. You guys are both correct. They did plot to kill Fidel Castro with the seashell. Uh, So there were a lot of crazy attempts to assassinate uh, Fidel Castro during the 70s, including booby trap cigars, to poison milkshakes, multiple of those but none quite so strange as an exploding seashell. The, the CIA knew that Castro was a big fan of scuba diving, so they plotted to plant a brightly colored uh, conch shell in one of his favorite dive spots, uh, triggered to explode when he touched it. They never followed through with it, although the CIA director did purchase two books on Caribbean mollusks, so it never came to fruition, but they did plot about it.
0: Okay, the third question is, which do you think that the Scottish government has actually done? One, they tried to make learning bagpipes in school mandatory. Two, they mandated that all children have to watch Brave in the second grade. Three, they tried to hide knowledge of a sea monster. And four, they tried to change their national animal from a unicorn to a falcon.
5: Okay, I'm 99% sure the national animal of Scotland is still a unicorn. Is it really? I think so. Oh, wait.
1: Wait, no, I joke. actually, I don't have the question, so I don't know. i think you
0: too.
5: It's that one, it's the last one, it's the last one.
0: I'm gonna go with um, the bagpipes. The bagpipes, okay. Okay, so you're both incorrect. The answer is the Scottish government may be trying to hide a sea monster. So basically in 1934, a Scottish doctor claimed he saw a monster in the deep lake um, known as Loch Ness. And he grabbed a camera and he snapped a photo, which became one of the most iconic photos of the 20th century. And in the photo, you can see a long um, shape that's like dark and it resembles a bronchosaurus. And thousands of people have been claiming to see this aquatic creature every year. And at least some in the Scottish government say they were not wrong. News published documents revealed that the former Scottish police chief opinionated that there is some strange creature in Loch Ness. Uh, now that seems beyond doubt. So, yes, that's really interesting. I feel
5: like there's we all one hear about police them. chief for all of Scotland.
0: I, I guess so. I don't know. Like, we have a national security director. Maybe that's theirs. So I don't know. We do? Yeah, right. I don't know. Don't quote me. <laughs> <laughs> that should have been the title of our podcast.
5: <laughs> don't quote don't me. Quote me.
0: <laughs> it's true.
1: Okay. No, it's funny, though, because I feel like we all hear about Loch Ness, but I never considered it as being, like, something where people in the government were, like, actually supporting the, like the idea of it, or yeah. talking about it, at least.
0: You know, crazy. Okay.
1: okay, well, thank you to Maddie and Galen. That's unfortunately the conclusion of our first game, but we will have you back on in the future to play. Um, what, was the, what was the score for that? Galen, you got one right, so did Maddie. Oh no, Galen got two right. Two to one. Two to one, okay, Galen, I think that means that you're our first winner. Um, Maddie, you're gonna have to come back and take that title from him in the future. For sure. How fitting. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.
5: You guys.
0: Cedra Miller, a FPYC content producer from North Carolina, is here to expand our conversation to policy and politics in Lebanon.
6: In the wake of the Beirut tragedy, Lebanon is a country on its knees. An ever-present undercurrent of rage was set aflame last week after a massive deadly explosion in Beirut, the country's capital, that killed hundreds of innocent individuals. Lebanon's Prime Minister, Hassan Diab, has since stepped down from his role in office, caving to the demands of political protesters. The blast lit the fuse of a social bomb built from years of silenced frustrations at the inept government. Exasperation at how the government handled the fallout from the blast has merely topped off the wave of grievances, rapidly threatening to ruin the country. For decades, greedy politicians in Lebanon have enriched themselves while the Lebanese people continue to suffer. The cause of Lebanese political corruption can be traced as far back as 1943, causing a divide in leadership. The three main political offices are divided among the three biggest religious communities, which is hindering cooperation. Lebanon's religious diversity has made it impossible for politicians to act for the good of all people. The President is Maronite Christian, the Speaker of Parliament is Shia Muslim, and the Prime Minister is Sunni Muslim. The political leaders often protect the interests of their own political and religious communities over those of the entire population. So this leads us to an essential question. Will Lebanese citizens be satisfied with merely the Prime Minister stepping down? Vast crowds of people are calling for full government reform for tearing down the broken, biased system in order to create something entirely new. Diab's resignation may be the signal of a country's collapse, or perhaps reform. The system is so dysfunctional that it will certainly take radical reform to bring about positive change. The explosion, while hideous, brings with it heavy social baggage. There will be long-term consequences across the board for both the government and citizens. Former Prime Minister Diab's final words, while fitting, have an ugly, hopeless ring to them. May God protect Lebanon. The quote suggests that Lebanon is a lost cause beyond its own help. However, there is hope yet for the country. We see it in the eyes of protesters, in the young and angry, in the poor and in the hungry. They carry the potential of new beginnings, of shedding corruption and greed in favor of democracy. The government has recognized their thirst for change, but will it respond? Ignoring the issues certainly won't make them go away. In fact, it may tip the scales towards full-scale rebellion. At the moment, a staggering 57,000 Lebanese citizens have signed a petition for France to take control of Lebanon for 10 years. The petition reads, With a failing system, corruption, terrorism, and militia, the country has just reached its last breath. We believe Lebanon should go back under the French mandate in order to establish a clean and durable governance. The explosion, though devastating and catastrophic, has created an opportunity for the international community to demand change within the Lebanese government, help restore political transparency and end famine and economic devastation. However, it also creates an opportunity for countries like Iran and Russia to exert greater influence over the Lebanese military and could even allow terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State the chance to make gains in the country and region. The fate of the country is uncertain. If Lebanon becomes a French mandate as desired by many Lebanese citizens, a new governance with transparency and cooperation could be created, holding the best interest of the people at its core. If Lebanon falls under the influence of a major power such as Iran or Russia, Shiite militia such as Hezbollah, which many Western countries, including the United States, Canada, and France, classify as a terrorist organization, could gain even more power and control. If terrorist groups such as the Islamic State and al-Qaeda make gains in the country, they would acquire a strategic position to fight the Syrian civil war and expand extremism as Lebanon borders the southwest border of Syria. Thank you all for
1: listening to this week's episode of Time Out, Let's Talk Policy, a podcast from the Foreign Policy Youth Collaborative. To learn more, visit us at fpyouthcollab.org or any of our social medias at fpyouthcollab. Once again, all opinions expressed in this episode are that of the individuals and do not represent FPYC. Tune in every Monday morning for more FPYT. See you guys next week.
5: Bye-bye.